Hey everyone, welcome or welcome back to the Quaybog Church podcast. At the end of this episode, take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel or check us out on Facebook. That way you'll have access to fresh content every week. But most importantly, we hope the following message inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey because our mission here at Quaybog is to help you worship, connect, and serve. Enjoy! The theory is that because of the nature of what we're talking about is not just Scripture. So it's not just an expository message where I go verse by verse by verse. It's going to use a lot of Scripture, but it's also going to use history. It's going to use some philosophy. And philosophy can get a little tricky sometimes, right? And then it's also going to use history uh, because those are the things that God has given us. So why shouldn't we use those things when we're thinking about God? Because Jesus said to love Him with our heart, soul, and mind, right? And so He added that in, and that was not from Deuteronomy. Jesus saw fit to say, and you need to also love Him with your mind. Revelation and Romans and Genesis and Psalms, on and on and on, you know, the evidence is all around us. So let's consider the stuff that's all around us, and that's kind of what we're doing in this series to understand some of these questions. Now, as a, a baseline for what we're doing, uh, why did I do this series? And not just because I read this and I thought it was cool. I read this and I thought it was cool, and I wanted to say, hey, let's take this and apply it to the saints, so to speak. So let's take this and address these questions that the skeptics are wondering about. Let's do it for the ones that are in the audience that aren't believers or are skeptical or maybe the one that's online watching. But the, the like first and foremost for me, my job as your pastor, if you're a follower of Jesus, is to equip you to be a Christian. Right? That is first and foremost on the mind. To equip you all, if you're a follower of Jesus, to equip you all watching, if you're a follower of Jesus, to actually follow Jesus with your life. Right? And so, Ephesians 4 is my framework. I'm going to share this every Sunday we do this series. And Jesus gave some to the church to be apostles, some to be prophets, some evangelists, some like myself, pastors, and teachers. Why would Jesus do this? To equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. So my primary job is to help you be a Christian and to help you build up the body of Christ. And if you're not here as a believer or if you're skeptic or you're anywhere in between, still, I want to present the gospel to you. I want to help us understand who Jesus is and what this is all about. But how should we do that? When we share, we live in a very toxic environment, you might say. So, to debate somebody or to disagree with somebody in our culture today is equal to hating them. That's kind of the culture we live in, right? Now, it's not true. Just because I disagree with you doesn't mean I hate you, but that's the world that we live in right now. So we need to be aware of that. So in light of that, First Peter chapter 3, another framework verse for us. Be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. So that's what we're trying to do. Give some reasons, a defense to anybody. However, when we do that, verse 16, do this with gentleness and reverence, right? Gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience. So that next verse, when you're living out your faith, yep, next, there we go, so that when you're accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. You're going to live your life in such, such a way that there's really no accusation that can be made against you. Because you're not a jerk, you're not a hypocrite, you're not perfect, right? But you're not just intentionally living your life completely contrary to Christ. So 
if you're living according to Christ, expect some persecution for that. It's kind of reading between the lines. But because you're living your life like Christ, expect there not to be much ground to be able to attack you. Right? So it's interesting, this verse. So this is our framework. This is kind of where we're coming from in this series. Now, the, the things that we've hit, the topics that we've hit so far, uh, have been bigger ones. So how do we know God is real was the first one that we really tried to address because that's a starting point for all of this stuff. And that question is asked a lot. Some of the things that we gave, I tried to give four things just to consider. One is the universe. The fact that it's even here is mind-boggling. But it's not just the fact that the universe exists, it's the fine-tuning of that universe, right, that we see around us. Because keep in mind, when the universe came into existence, there were a lot of things that had to be like that. Perfect. No margin for error. In an instant, they had to be perfect. And that's a pretty fascinating thing to think about. So the universe exists at all, but the fine-tuning of that universe. And then number three is the leap from material to life. We still don't quite understand how that happened. How do we go from stuff to life? That's a pretty big jump, but it happened. So it's something to consider for a God. And the last one is right and wrong. Uh, we don't do well as humans deciding for ourselves what is right and wrong. Right now, again, we live in a culture that says whoever is loudest, they get to be right. Or whoever doesn't get canceled, they get to be right. Right? That's the reality of the world that we live in. So what happens when morality swings back the other way? What then? Right? What happens when your best friend does something wrong? commits a crime, cheats on a test, and now all of a sudden you're like, well, I mean, it's not that bad. I mean, the teacher was kind of rough. And was, you know, those cops, you know, ah, it's like our morality shifts. I see people do it all the time. We shift our morality. We think we're good at defining right and wrong, but we just can't. Because the closer it gets to us, the less likely we are to see, stand on those really hard lines, kind of in general, right? And so knowing, how God, knowing that God is real, that was our starting point. But then we drilled down a little bit, and we said, okay, well, how do we know which God is real? Because there's a bunch out there. And the argument I tried to present last week was that Jesus Christ is the real God. Now, why would I say that? What's my basis for that? It's because the, the life and ministry of Jesus and, and everything he says ends if he doesn't actually come back in the resurrection. Because if you look at the story, it's recorded pretty honestly, right? If Jesus dies, the movement ends right there because he's been duping people for three years. And these guys were chickens on the night of the arrest. Like, they ran and abandoned. All of them abandoned Jesus because they were terrified. What happened to that group of cowards in just a few days that would make them go and all give their lives for the gospel? Something pretty big must have happened. So my argument is, and like Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 15, if the resurrection is real, then it validates everything else that Jesus said. And he said he was God. He talked about heaven and hell. He talked about eternity. Right? He talked about a lot of really hard things. And so what John says is, look, that validates. First Corinthians 15, that validates who Jesus is as the real God. Because I want you to understand, in the New Testament, in the book of John, they make it really clear. His enemies make it super clear. He says, which, for which one of my good deeds, which one of my miracles are you wanting to crucify me for? And I go, look, we don't want to kill you because of any of the good deeds you did. We're killing you. We want to murder you. We want to crucify you because you, a mere man, claim to be God. So there was no confusion. His enemies did not misunderstand. Jesus wasn't like, whoa, 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 that's extreme. That's not what I said. Let me clarify. He was just like, right. He just let that one go because that's what he said. So that was my argument. That was my contention based on the resurrection and the fact that historically the book of Acts is a real thing. 
You want to see what happened? The miracle of the early church is the book of Acts. And even, like I said last week, even atheist historians, atheist philosophers, they look at the book of Acts and they're like, yeah, that's a historical fact that happened. And it's a miracle. And we don't know how it happened. But it did. And it's like, well, because the resurrection is real. And because the Holy Spirit is real. And so these are just some things that even people that don't believe are still like, man, we really have to contend with what actually factually happened. Not just a fairy tale in the Bible. Like it really, really happened. So that's where we were uh, the last couple of weeks. And then this week, we jump into a much harder question because it lands in our lives in an uncomfortable way. Is how do I know why we suffer? How do I understand that better? Um, this is a tough one because suffering is real and it's, it, it can feel like a real challenge to God because here's the critique of why we suffer and there being a good God because they seem opposed. If there is a good God, how can such awful suffering happen? So the, the, the argument goes, and there's kind of three different paths to take on this. First is that, okay, if there is a God and there is suffering, then God doesn't care about your suffering. That's one option. Or God can't do anything about your suffering. So then he's not really God. He's not really all-powerful. That's the case. Or the last one, which maybe is the most troubling, is that God just enjoys watching you suffer. Right? Because if you're like the, with the like God with the magnifying glass, you're just down here burning ants, right? And that's all we are, right? And so that's a critique of that. And these are all understanding, understandable critiques for me. Like, I understand that because suffering is very real. And it's, and it's hard to explain. And it's not easy to talk about, especially when it visits our front door. But what I want to try to think about this morning together is can suffering and a good God coexist? Can they be reconciled in your life? So this is a message that everybody needs to hear because we are all going to suffer. At some point, you are going to suffer. And so can we find meaning in the suffering? Can you? Or do you only think there's meaning without suffering? Like while you're suffering, it's just like, man, I'm just kind of like wallowing in this. And then I just need to get out of this so I can get back to my life. And living in America impacts the way that you answer that if you didn't know. Like living in this country with all of the comforts that were afforded, are really going to affect how you approach the fairness of God and suffering. And it's something just to consider as we think about that this morning. Because in our country, the assumption is that suffering is bad. Now, I'm not trying to say that we should just all be praying for suffering. Like, you know, Pastor Kyle said, go home and be like, Lord, just bring it. I just want to grow, you know. Suffering is bad. But the assumption, that, though, is that it is only bad, that there is almost nothing to gain from it, that we should run from it, and that comfort and pleasure are good and right and what we should be aiming for. You know, most of us don't watch commercials anymore because we don't have to, but when we're forced to, and, you know, you see that YouTube countdown, it's like you've got a minute and 59 seconds of your life, you're going to have to wait watching somebody's commercial. But most of them are telling you they're going to make your life better because you deserve it. Right? Because suffering, man, and, and any kind of unpleasantness, we run from that in our country. But here's the thing I want you to, like, pay attention. Whether you're watching or you're sitting here in the seat listening to me, I want you to really think about this point here. We have comfort and pleasure to a level that the rest of the world doesn't really understand. Like, they really don't understand. They cannot conceptualize that. And so when we have it visited on us, it's almost like we don't have any way to understand it. And we run from it. And yet we have all of these pleasures. We have all these comforts. But where are people right now emotionally in our country? 
depression skyrocketing, right? I read the other day that suicide is like the second or third leading cause of death in teenagers right now. We have everything in this country. Anxiety, addiction, all in the upswing. Why? We've got everything we could ever want, for the most part, in this country, and yet we are miserable. And there's a ton of, like, ton of people that just feel like they have no meaning and purpose. And yet they've got everything they could ever want. Binge watch endless amounts of shows, endless amounts of stupid stuff, swipe until your thumb breaks. Food, right? Easy convenience. Walking through Walmart yesterday, I'm like, damn, look at all this stuff. Look at all this stuff. I, I, I get anything, anything I need. No one I was going to be preaching on this today. It was like, I could just go through the store and I got enough money, I could buy $100 of just junk food and I could go home and make myself sick. And I, I wanted to, I'm not going to lie, a little bit. Some of those things, man, like the zebra cake, come on. But we sprint from suffering. And I wonder, though, that what I want to think about is, like, is this, like, suffering but living a fulfilled life, is that really better than living a life of comfort but being aimless and hopeless and full of anxiety? Like, not, we don't want to embrace that. So there's some questions I have that, like, that I was thinking about. And I wrote some of these down because I, as I think about suffering and the people that I love and care about, it's like, is there such a thing? And this is the harder question. Is there, and it's more philosophical, so stick with me. Is there such a thing as suffering without God? And here's where it gets confusing. So, without a good God, can we even have a way to define suffering? Because usually they seem mutually exclusive. If God's good, there can't be suffering. But I began to wonder, without God, do we have a way to even define suffering? Because if you are a pure, materialistic, reductionist atheist, as in there is only the material world, in that framework, without God, there is no such thing as suffering. I don't know if you realize that or not. Because you are no different. You dying is morally no different than me helping an old lady across the street. There's no difference. I've heard atheists argue this way. Like, I know this is a difficult thing to say, and most people don't want to hear this, but me killing a baby and me walking an old lady across the street are exactly the same. Thanks. Right? Like, so me, my life doesn't matter. Without God, my suffering is no different than a tree falling down in the woods. Without God, suffering gets really tricky because not only does your suffering not matter, but more importantly, it doesn't matter because you don't matter. You're just a bunch of DNA bebopping around the earth until you die. And then you get to go back to the earth, and finally you're useful because now you're going to feed the dirt. Like that, it's sad, but when you talk to like a hardcore, serious, like total reductionist, down to just a material matter atheist, there is no such thing as suffering. So for us, we wrestle with God and the fact that suffering and, and, and hurt and all this stuff, but why is it bad? Without God, why is it bad? It's just like a, a butterfly dying in the woods. It's just leaves falling off a tree. And that's like, no, of course, that's stupid. No, we don't believe that. But again, that's why it gets tricky philosophically, because it's like without a good God, how do we even define bad. And so these are just some things I wanted to think about, again, as an apologetic to our faith, but also for you personally, as you wrestle, God, why would you do this? Because what I see in the Bible is nothing but story after story of people suffering. I don't know if you've ever noticed that before, but the Bible is full of it, 
full of suffering and God meeting people in those places of suffering. Because I don't know about you. I want you to think about this for yourself. Again, whether you're here, whether you're watching online, have you somehow adopted the idea that because God is good, or if you are a Christian, that suffering should no longer exist? That bad things aren't going to happen to you because you've got God in your life? That's a super American worldview. You talk to Christians in other parts of the world, especially suffering persecuted church parts of the world, they absolutely know suffering is going to be part of life. And it's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. Over and over and over again, you hear stories, these rich, painful stories of people hurting and God meeting them there in the middle of the suffering. But in America, I'm telling you, I talk to people in states all across the country as I've traveled, and a lot of people believe the same thing. If God is good and I'm a Christian, suffering shouldn't exist. We just we do believe that. A lot of people in the West believe that because we've got it so good. Right? And so it's something to really consider. But I want you to think about the verse we started off with this morning out of Psalm 22. Look at this. This is King David, of all people, in the Old Testament. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? God, I'm crying out. Why is this happening? Where are you? Verse 2. My God, I cry by day, but you don't answer. By night, and yet I have no rest, God. But I, this is where we land. But you're holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. God, my life is a wreck. Where are you? But I know who you are. It's amazing that that's what David went with his suffering. I'm going to suffer, and I don't know where you are, but I know who you are. That's an interesting take on suffering. That's a much different way to approach it. And then, of course, Jesus would say these words on the cross. And last week we argued that Jesus is God. So here is God on the cross. And it's this moment in time that is hard to understand and even like explain. But here he is on the cross, and there's this, like, this break in the unity of the Trinity. Because Jesus is being judged, and the sin of the world is being dumped on him. And Jesus would say this in this scene right here, in Mark 15. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. So it's a kind of spooky setting here when Jesus is about to die on the cross. And there, there Jesus was, at three o'clock, he cries out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, let us abort and I. Which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? I mean, you talk about something that we can't even begin to wrap our minds around. What was happening in this moment as there was this pause in the unity of the Trinity and Jesus is paying for my sin. He's paying for your sin. And even Jesus on the cross is feeling this pain, feeling the weight of suffering. He was abandoned by his followers, right? He was accused of things that he didn't do. Like, all of this stuff, Jesus understands, and here he is screaming out and owning these words in Psalm chapter 22. So the idea that we shouldn't suffer because God is good or because we have Jesus, it's like, well, God himself felt it and walked through it. And for some reason, we've, we've kind of developed this idea that we're not going to have to suffer. But my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And so then I begin to think, too, reading this article and just having conversations with people, can we find any meaning in suffering? And this is a thing, this is not a pleasant, really, place to go. 
to think that we can find meaning in suffering. But I want you to think, and I sent some texts out to random people uh, last week or the week before, and I said, hey, do you know any good stories of people that really had to um, work through suffering and difficulty? Because I was thinking, like, do I know stories of suffering and like, in working through that that I would want to share? And I asked Asher, my daughter, and she shot right back, remember the Titans. If you ever seen that movie, the thing they were fighting against was racism. It's a pretty big, pretty big one, right? So if you've not seen that, watch that. Or any other sports mir- like movie, right? Like Miracle. You all seen Miracle before? I wanted to join a hockey team and, like, I, I don't know. I, I just want to be American. Like, when I saw that movie, I was like, I want to go and just wrestle Putin to the ground right now. Um, whatever I need to do for you, America. Right? That movie was so inspiring because of what they fought against, right? Just the, like, just the, the little guy, David and Goliath, story for sure. But... You know, why do we like these stories? Why do we like stories like Lord of the Rings? You talk about an epic battle against, like, good and evil and, like, and struggle. You talk about the movie Rocky, right? I think it was Tim that told me about Rocky. Even in real life, Sylvester Stallone had to sell his dog in order to be able to make that movie, right? So even the story behind the story is pretty incredible. And he bought it back, like, years later, and somebody charged him, like, tens of thousands of dollars for it. But... Uh, but the suffering, though, we see that in those movies. Uh, anything from World War II, right? If you like World War II, pick out any movie and what is it about? What's it about? Struggle and overcoming struggle. What makes these stories great? The struggle and overcoming that struggle. And we understand that principle that there's value and meaning in what they did, and the stories they stay with us. Because of the struggle, and the victory is all the sweeter because of the struggle and the victory through the struggle. And yet, when it visits us, it's harder to find meaning in suffering because we're not always looking for it. You know, it's like it, it hits us so heavy. And in the Bible, you see story after story after story of this suffering. You see Hagar abandoned, right? You see Ruth and all she had to go through. You see Joseph who had struggle after struggle after struggle, right? Joseph, favorite son of the favorite wife. His brothers hate him. They verbally and physically abuse him, throw him in a pit, sell him as a slave. He's accused wrongly when he gets to Egypt of rape, goes to jail, right? Up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. He's left to rot for years because the people he prophesied for, well, one of them died. But the other one totally forgets him. And then he's like, oh, yeah, that's right. There's this guy. He can interpret dreams. And Joseph finally gets out of jail. It's an unbelievable story. It's an encouraging story. And at the end, he saves Egypt and he saves his deceitful brothers. And we look at that story and we're like, man, that's powerful. Look at all the lessons. Look what God did. Look at that. But then when it visits us, it's harder to do that. It's really hard to do that, to say, look, there's going to be meaning, man. God's going to turn this around. God's going to do something with this. As hard as it may be, it's really difficult in the moment, but we see that in other stories. And then we end up asking the question, well, why suffering? Why do bad things happen to good people? But another way, again, you could say that again, not just why suffering, but why do bad things happen? But a different question I would like you to consider how often you ask, why do good things happen? Most people don't come to my office in the middle of the week with tears in their eyes, and they're like, Kyle, man, there's so much goodness in my life right now, and I just don't know why God is doing this to me. Never has anybody ever done that. And if you could do that this week, I'm just going to be like, no, just be quiet. Get out of here. 
But I don't see this. I see it in Scripture. I see David do this in First Samuel. He says, God, what is it about me? No, second Samuel. What is it about me that you would do this? Nope. First Samuel. He says, God, who am I? Like, have you ever done that? Who am I? What is it about me? Why have you chosen me? Why is my life so blessed? Why was I born in America? Why do I get to walk through Walmart and just pick stuff out of the aisle because I don't need it, but I want it? Right? Like, do we ask why good things happen to us? And then another question kind of related to that, why don't good things satisfy? Why do we have so much and yet we're so miserable, we're so lost, we feel so empty? It's tough. It's tough to really think through these things. And then another more difficult question, too, is am I suffering because of the consequences of choices I've made? Because that's another one. You see that in Proverbs. Lord, it's like people, it says, people make their own decisions, they wreck their lives, and then they get upset with God. Lord, why can't I pay my bills? Well, maybe because you're spending money like it's on fire in your pocket. Right? Like, why is my relationship like X, Y, or Z? And it's like, okay, because is somebody selfish? Are you yourself? Like, now it's ownership time. Like, the things that are happening in my life, Lord, why is my wife not wanting to talk to me? Well, maybe because she caught you watching porn. And now she doesn't want you touching her. And you're like, I don't understand. I said I'm sorry. Like, well, good job. Right? Like, consequences and suffering. Like, is it my fault? Like, you know, these are, again, these are tough questions. But, but, there's something I want to think about. Like, this hierarchy. There's, like, this why, like, what do we need and what makes us happy? In 1943, there was a study done by this guy, Abraham Maslow. And he did a study based on observations that he'd made. And he says, this is what humans need for happiness and fulfillment. So number one, makes sense, hunger, thirst, physical comfort. Let's get those squared away and you'll be good to go. That's what we need. You get those done, then you move on to number two. Now you're looking at safety and security. Once you got that, you're good to go. All right? And then you're going to move on. And we've got one and two down pretty much in this country. Number three, then you're going to want love and belonging. Right? And once you kind of got those figured out, now you're going to move on to number four, and you've got respect and accomplishment. I need those. And number five, the last step, he said, now you can focus your energy on philosophy, knowledge, wisdom. And I added religion because he didn't even add it. Right? I'm assuming maybe that's what he means by philosophy. So this is what he says we need. However, in Scripture, if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, has anybody ever read the book of Ecclesiastes? Yeah. It is a big, wet, heavy blanket. And it's just like, hey, I've done all of this stuff. It's Solomon. He's had everything. And he's looking back at the end of his life, and he looks at his life, and he calls it all a waste of time, like chasing after the wind. He said, I have had every comfort you could ever imagine, and here I am at the end of my life wondering what I did with my life. I feel lost. I feel aimless. I feel like I wasted my time. But we live in a culture, clearly, that puts God, if at all, at the very end of what we need. Whereas, of course, of course God says, no, 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 you need to get your, like, your spiritual life right first because Jesus over and over and over again was like, look, if your soul is not right, nothing else is ever going to happen. Like, nothing else is ever going to click for you because the physical world, comforts and suffering are both temporary. But the spiritual stuff, that's forever stuff. And that's why Jesus always brought it back to that. But we don't think that way. We just don't think that way about suffering and about the reality of like what's good and what's bad. And so God gives us a much different hierarchy of what we need. And so I want to share just like several, just several points from Scripture this morning to help us wrap our mind around this. Because suffering is a super hard topic 
And we're not just going to be like, okay, I totally understand suffering now, but hopefully we can look at Scripture and get a better framework to understand what to do when it comes to us. So, the, the first thing, suffering and growth. Here's an interesting connection that God makes. In Deuteronomy 8, Moses says to the people, so this is like, you know, Moses and, you know, escaping from Egypt, all that, all that time frame. He says, he humbled you by letting you go hungry. So that's not good. Then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your ancestors had not known. And why did he let you go hungry? So that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. When Jesus himself was suffering in the desert, he quoted this passage. In Matthew 4, he quotes this passage. Because he understands, again, it's not that we need the physical things first. It's that we need Christ first. It's that we need God in our lives. So when he says, by every word that comes to the mouth of the Lord, that's that connection. And so what we see in Jesus with suffering is that people are going to actually meet Jesus, not in spite of it, but because of it. I want you to consider this, that we often think like things need to be good in order to meet him, and we can talk about the goodness of God and all that. But oftentimes what you see is people meeting Jesus in the middle of those and moments because he understands what's important. And here's a like hard truth from Jesus. This is one of the most difficult things that Jesus says about this life on this earth. He says in Matthew 10, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, because he's saying that's a reality, if you read between the lines, but cannot kill the soul. What Jesus said is a terrifying thing. Again, pyramid upside down, spiritual first, suffering, physical things, second. He said, rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And there's a terrifying reality and a potential possibility that hell is going to be a physical place. And so the idea, though, that God is the one that we should fear, not, he, Jesus says, the very real possibility that you could be killed in this life. That's not fair. That's difficult. Like, that could happen to you, Jesus says. It's a reality. But what's more important is the spiritual nature of who we are. And that's, to me, again, the, the crux of what Jesus talks about is the reality of suffering. In John 16, 33, it says this, I told you these things, everything he said in the upper room, John 14, 15, 16, so that in me you may have peace. Well, why would I need peace, Jesus? Because you will have suffering in this world. Be courageous, I have conquered the world. The Greek word there for suffering is direct, intentional suffering. I am doing it to you on purpose. He said, you're going to experience intentional suffering, intentional things from other people. But people are going to come after you, he's telling them, on purpose. So suffering is going to visit your door. We're Camp New England asked me this summer if I would come and speak on this verse right here. So I get for a week, I'm going to have to speak on this and the reality of suffering to a bunch of students for a week. And I'm going to share my story with them. I'm going to share what has happened with me about the reality of suffering, but how Jesus met me right in the middle of it. Direct suffering. And how we misunderstand it. And how Jesus can meet us there. Because that's when I met Jesus, when my life was falling apart in high school. And here's, like, here's the, again, in spite of our suffering or because of our suffering. In Matthew, we see another scene. Watch this. Just then, famous scene. Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. They bring him in, and this is what they're looking for. They want healing. But seeing their faith, Jesus tells the paralytic, have courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. He goes after the spiritual first because he realizes that's what's important. So, not in spite of, but because of his suffering, that's how he met 
Jesus Christ. They were just going to see this miracle worker. They won't worry about forgiveness of sins, and Jesus attacks that first. He says, this is what's going on. So why do we suffer? Why do we suffer? Well, the Bible is really clear that it's reality of life. It's going to happen. It's going to be something that happens in our lives. And Jesus himself suffered. And Jesus himself suffered. Look what, look what he says about his own life. Jesus told this guy, foxes have dens, birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Why? Because he's homeless. He's absolutely homeless. That's why he has no place. And then there's this other passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I know a lot of people, a lot of Christians, who say things like, God will never give me more than I can handle. Then, when you are given more than you can handle, you say, God must not love me, I must have sinned, God must not care about me, because I am in way over my head. And I know, Scripture has said, He'll never give me more than I can handle. So He must not be real. But what Scripture actually says is that God will never tempt you beyond what you can handle. And when you are tempted, He's going to give you two things. Strength to stand up underneath it, and a way out. That's what that verse says. Because the very same guy that is misquoted as saying God will never give you more than you can handle, absolutely had more than he can handle. If we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, look at this. This is Paul sharing his life with us. He said, we were completely overwhelmed. We were beyond our strength. Ergo, God gave us more than we could handle. So that even, we even despaired of life itself. We thought we were going to die. I was way in over my head. And then he says, indeed, we thought that we had received a sentence of death. Why, though? And this is an amazing way to look back on his suffering. So that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. There's meaning in the suffering. There's meaning and purpose and value. Life is hard. And it's going to be hard. And you're going to get more than you can handle at times. But what are you going to do when you get there? What are you going to do when you get there? Are you going to lean into God? Or are you going to say, God, if you're good, bad things shouldn't be happening? When he never said anything like that. He was like, I experienced it and I'll walk through it with you as well. But that's a hard truth. That's a hard truth. So let me share a few more passages with you. Look at John chapter 9. He's asked the question that we are asking this morning. So Jesus is walking along. He sees a man who has been blind from birth. And Rabbi, his disciples, asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? Did he do something wrong? We still ask that question today. And Jesus clearly says, look, it was not because of his sins or his parents' sins. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. How long had this guy been blind? So that he would have this one history-altering moment that would be passed down for 2,000 years. When you talk about meaning in your suffering and understanding the bigger scope of what's happening, but this guy had to live this out, probably wondering why God made him blind, wondering what he did, what did his parents do, why am I like this? And Jesus shows up and he says, for this moment right here, and they're going to be talking about it for a couple thousand years or so. But that's a different way to look. That's a different framework. And then 2 Corinthians 1.4, the Apostle Paul, again, would say this, God comforts us in all our troubles. Why? So we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we'll be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. Like we have to have a more realistic, biblically-based view of suffering and difficulty. Because if all you can do is wallow in your suffering, you're never going to be able to be Christ-like and help somebody else in theirs. Ever. 
because you're only going to be focused on yourself. What happens in the body of Christ when somebody suffers? We should all suffer with them. Right? Carlo and his family, man, we've been suffering with you guys because we love you guys. And I know that people have been able to share stories about what they've walked through. When I go to work camp, I'm going to share stories with them because my life was a disaster when I met Jesus. I had walked through abuse as a child. I had walked through alcoholism, blowing my family up. I had been through making wrong decisions, getting arrested. Isn't that a cute scene? Your pastor in cuffs in the back of a cruiser. Been there, done it, right? In high school, I was a train wreck just waiting to happen. And then I met Jesus Christ. Then I met Jesus Christ because I went to a church who, when I was arrested, didn't run me out of the youth group. Instead, they comforted me. Instead, they showed me a different way forward. Because some of those people had been through train wrecks as well. And we don't throw people away, Quaybog Church. Right? When people suffer, we do it with them. Like 1 Corinthians 12 says, right? That's how we should do this. So in Luke 13, last one. About this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were doing what? They were offering sacrifices to the temple. These people were going to church and they were murdered. Talk about unfair. I'm here in the service of the Lord and I get murdered. So, Jesus says, do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee? Is that why they suffered? No, not at all. But he says, again, spiritual first. And you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. And then Jesus just brings up another one. He says, and what about those 18 people who died when the tower of Siloam fell on them? Were they worse sinners in Jerusalem? Are the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No. And I tell you again that unless you repent, you will perish too. You will perish too. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have overcome the world. Matthew 28, 20. And be sure of this. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. You're going to suffer. It's going to visit your doorstep some way or other. It visited the very doorstep of Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe. We have to have a more realistic framework of suffering. I can't give you easy, simple answers this morning, but I can tell you that God is going to walk in it with you because he walked in it himself. And then, even better almost, it's like, you know, not only is he going to be with us, added bonus is the church that is going to walk this out as well. Because if you ever consider that this is like an army of sorts, this is like a team, and when you do that, when naturally when you're a team, or when you have that mindset, you are going to say, you know, we've got a difficulty ahead and we're going to do it together. We're absolutely going to do it together. That's, that's what makes a team strong. And my question for Quaybar Church is, are we going to remain strong? Or are we just going to be a bunch of islands that are upset with God? Or are we going to say, no, God said this was going to happen. He said he's going to be with me. And you know what? Other people are going to comfort me. And then when I do get through this, or as I'm going through this, man, I'm going to be with other people. And I'm going to share my story to help them. That's what it's supposed to look like. That is real Christianity. And that's what changes the world. That's what changes the world. And that's what we're called to. So hopefully today you at least, man, you just get at least a framework to look, look at suffering. And understand that doesn't negate God. It actually requires a good God. Can you move this out? All right, let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths that are in it. Um, the, 
the scriptures aren't um, abstract. They're not so spiritualized that they're not real because we live in a very real world with very real suffering. And everyone in this room has an experience with uh, past suffering, current suffering, or we're about to enter into suffering. And so none of us are strangers to the realities of this harsh world. And yet, uh, you are still God. You still sit on your throne. You still know what you're doing. And even though we'll never have the answers to those burning questions about why am I suffering right now, uh, you have those answers. And you're with us through it. Because while you're not going to just make all things go away, because this world is still broken, you're still a good enough God to go through it with us. And so we appreciate that about you. I pray that anyone in this room who is currently in suffering, uh, I pray that you're going to be with them right now. You've already promised that you'll be with them through it. And so let them feel that presence again. You make a big difference. And so I'm asking today that you do that. I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. We love you here. Have a great week. Once again, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's message, we'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast so you get notified of new content every week. Remember, we want to help you worship, connect, and serve. So if you live in the central Massachusetts area, we would love for you to engage with us on Sundays. For more information, service times, and details about our children's and youth ministries, visit us at quaybogchurch.org. Have a blessed week.